What are the themes that we talk about? Um, love. I mean, at the, at the end of the day, I think people question whether or not they feel loved. That's a universal theme. Oh my God. You know, going back to uh, the antiquities, mm-hmm. uh, fear, um, hope, hopefulness, hopelessness, um, struggle. I mean, these are all universal themes. I don't think those change. I think what does change is the medium by which we express them. From cave drawings to family histories to stories around the fire, humans crave order among chaos, connection amid isolation. So we tell stories. Our mission at the Storytellers Network is to bring the art of story to the masses. Whether you're in marketing, you're an entrepreneur, or you're developing your own personal brand, telling your story effectively can make the difference between celebrating milestones and collecting unemployment. The Storytellers Network strives to help storytellers tell their stories so you can learn from the best. Now, your host, Dan Moyle. Welcome, storytellers. I am your host, your guide, your librarian. I'm Dan Moyle, and I love story. I love hearing stories, telling stories, sharing stories. I just love everything about storytelling. And, uh, and I love connecting with storytellers that I admire and some that I'm getting to know right alongside you as you listen. I believe in the power of story because it is what connects us. It's what makes us human from culture to business, to learning, to entertainment. Story is critical to our communication as humans. And what better, and what better way to learn about how to do it better than to learn from the expert storytellers from all walks of life and to just to hear their stories. Now, as we get into today's conversation, a real quick nudge to visit the website for everything you need, head to the storytellersnetwork.com for past episodes with amazing storytellers, for links to resources to help you tell a better story and connect with other storytellers and contact information for me and a chance also to subscribe via email and get the newsletter every month. You can sign up all there at the storytellersnetwork.com. So now for the show, Dan Smolin is a guy I connected with over email and he sent me a note and said, hey, I want to connect with you. And I thought, man, this looks like a great dude to connect with. DanSmolin.com is where you can see everything. He has a podcast called The Tightrope where he talks with people and, and encourages you to find work that is meaningful. It is absolutely incredible. I love the idea of finding our why and doing work in the world that means something to us. I'm fortunate to be able to do that professionally and also personally. So I'd love to have you do the same thing as a storyteller. So that's what we talk about with Dan. It is absolutely a great conversation. Plus don't fast forward to it, but wait till you get to the end where he tells his last story that I always ask my, my, my guests. His last story is, is awesome. It is such a serendipitous story for the day that we recorded. So I hope you enjoy that as well. So without further ado, Let's get to the stories. Dan Smolin, welcome to the Storytellers Network. Thank you for taking time to address story in this world in which you live and work. Uh, welcome to the show, my friend. Thank you, Dan. So, Dan, I want to. So, this is going to be weird, Dan and Dan, right? Um, <laughs> indeed, indeed. Right. Uh, so, I want to dig into to who you are, what you do, and why you're here. And as we do that, uh, I do want to start at my beginning, though. Um, do you consider yourself a storyteller? Oh, indeed I do. Indeed I do. That'll make it easy. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So, so as a storyteller, uh, at your core, is that also what you do professionally? You know, it's an interesting question. I think at my core, it is what I do because it, it provides me success in what I do. When I was in sales, when I spent 20 years in recruiting, 
I, I sold the value of the candidates that I was placing in jobs on my storytelling ability on telling their stories. So it's been an important um, skill set throughout my professional life. And I've been a storyteller since I was a little kid. Yeah. <laughs> Did you get in trouble telling too many stories in school? <laughs> no, it wasn't Good. that. It was learning, you know, my, one of my earliest memories was, you know, my mom getting me ready for bed. So what am I, three, four years old? And my favorite books were written by P.D. Eastman. You know, these literary classics such as A Fish Out of Water and Go Dog Go. And my perennial favorite, Are You My Mother? I was going to ask that one. Yes, I love that one. <laughs> my mom just turned 90 and I saw her on Sunday and I said, Are You My Mother? It's a running joke with us. <laughs> That's awesome. That's awesome. So you've been a, a story uh, observer, a story uh, creator and a story consumer all your life. That's awesome. Indeed. So, so let's talk a little bit professionally right now then. Um, when you and I connected, mm-hmm. what I thought was awesome is the fact that your, uh, your work now and your podcast, The Tightrope, mm-hmm. uh, you help encourage others to find meaningful work. In fact, on your website, it says the future of work is meaningful work. That's right. And that, like that speaks to me. That tells a story in my mind. But why don't, we, why don't you tell the story of that for me so that we can get it right from you? Well, um, the Tightrope podcast came out of a situation where um, when I was still recruiting and I ended it in 19, I'm sorry, 2018, um, I placed a lot of people, but towards the end, some of my recruits were telling me things aren't working out. The work isn't resonating. It's in some ways meaningless. Mm. I want to do something that I'm proud of. It's not just about a paycheck or it may be, I want to work in an environment where I don't feel like I'm around toxicity. So the meaningful work aspect is to get people to work that um, resonates with them, that they enjoy, you know, perhaps it helps the planet, uh, empowers people in communities is profound. That's what I'm about right now. That's what I am trying to do to get people to a better place and through their own storytelling um, we use the narratives of people that we interview to by example help our listeners uh, replicate success for themselves mm. so so it feels like and I, and I base this a little bit on one on, on one of the episodes that I did listen to uh-huh. you're helping others create a social impact which is our season currently Right uh, in their world around them. So, like I, the the interview um, you had about uh, paying off school lunch debt. Oh, I'm glad you listened that to that one. Settle the debt. Settle the debt. She was amazing. Um, so, so like, so I see you doing that kind of work, helping others have a social impact. Is is sharing those stories a big part of having the greater impact? Oh, indeed. I, I'm one person. I've had a. Uh, a four act career story over 40 years. I'm just one person. It gets boring for me to tell my stories over and over again. I'm more interested in what everybody else has to say. And it's interesting in that the people that I interview from all walks of life and all uh, environments and degrees of education and experience all can tell amazing stories. And Adele Settle, the, the episode that you listened to, uh, she named her nonprofit Settle the Debt. What an amazing story. This is a woman who 
um, works in the federal government, and um, and yet she lives in a community where um, a lot of kids don't get to eat their school lunches because their parents or caregivers can't afford to pay for them. Mm. And she found a way um, through this nonprofit to tell the stories of kids and caregivers who are struggling and the impact that uh, not eating has on school performance and on general well-being. And after that episode aired in December of 2019, within three weeks, Adele had raised over $60,000, which uh, helped to pay off between 800 and 1,000 accounts that had gone in arrears, meaning they had uh, negative balances on them. And those kids can now eat at school and they won't be shamed. Well, hopefully they won't be shamed. Right. That's an amazing story. Mm -hmm. And to be able to share that story to inspire others to maybe do the same thing in their community. I mean, what a, what a ripple effect of social impact. I, I love that. And, and that Dan gets back to the beauty of what we're doing. I'm about meaningful work, but that doesn't mean that the work that you do has to be your full-time paying job. Uh, in the case of Adele, she works full-time for the federal government. She earns no keep from running Settle the Debt, but its munificence comes out in the fact that she's helping thousands of people, many of whom she doesn't even know. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's such, a, that's such an important thing. You know, we, we talk, so this is off my, my usual script, I suppose, but, uh, but I love Simon Sinek talks about our golden circle of why. Mm. And we apply that to businesses. If you can share your why and connect with the consumer's why, you'll have a great relationship. But then we also apply it to ourselves, don't we? We talk about, mm. like, Dan, what you're talking about, meaningful work. Well, I want to have meaningful work. I want to have an impact. But maybe I, quote, unquote, you know, air quotes, just press a button on a press on an assembly line. Or maybe I'm, you know, just an attorney representing the government, whatever, like whatever that is, I'm just X. But in reality, we can take that outside of that and do meaningful work outside of our work, right? We don't have to quit our job right. and go do like We can do this in our other ways. Um, do you find people do that more often than try to find a career that does that? Can they, you know? People want why. And it's really interesting. I did not know you were going to ask this question. Hmm. Um, in late December, I'm sorry, in early December 2019, I spoke at a leadership conference at my alma mater, Ithaca College in upstate New York. And um, one of the things that I did was take the audience through my career and compare my experience as an undergrad at Ithaca College, I'm dating myself, 40 years ago in 1980, uh, to the experience that these um, undergrads were um, uh, experiencing in 2019 and 2020. And Dan, what I said to them was, the one question we didn't ask was why. It was what, it was where, and was when and how. But it wasn't why. And what do I mean by that? I was in a uh, prestigious um, broadcast communications program at Ithaca College where we felt like we were being shot out of a cannon. We were told to be ambitious, to go do, do, go, go, go. We never spent time on the meta-narrative of 
why are we here? Why is this important? And why do I need to be mindful about the pursuits that I'm going after? And what's really refreshing is today's college students do have a why narrative. And that's important because that lends itself to meaningful work. Meaningful work is all about why. Without the why, the work may just be transactional. Mm, absolutely. Yeah, that's, man, so much good stuff there. Um, how big of a part does storytelling play in getting your why in front of others and making them buy into it? Well, as I mentioned, when I was a recruiter, that storytelling was everything. Um, recruiters are often accused of being resume junkies <laughs> and, um, or jockeys rather, resume jockeys, not junkies. Maybe they are junkies. <laughs> Maybe a little know. bit of both. <laughs> a little, little bit of both. Um, you know, who put their rubber stamp imprimatur on the top of the resume and uh, scan it and send it off to the client. Uh, I was expected to comport myself like a high-end uh, uh, recruiting company and provide storytelling that wasn't um, apparent in the resume. And that came after one, two, three hours of interviewing with my candidate to find out what they were about, what made them tick, and what made them appropriate for the job that I was putting them in front of. So from the get-go of my recruiting career in 1998, I wrote story narratives, uh, or, or should I say, candidate narratives for every candidate that I put in front of a client. And um, I don't think a lot of recruiters do that um, as a matter of course, but I found that to be a necessary step, Dan, in kind of showing my work, in showing the why behind the candidates um, uh, being submitted to the client that I had. And it, it almost always meant that I did a better job of placing candidates, ergo being more financially successful for myself. Mm. So the storytelling is very, very important. And it's everything about my podcast now. It's all right. storytelling. Right. I, lo I love hearing a good story. Oh, it's, I, if, I could, if I could somehow make a paycheck from just listening to stories, it'd be perfect. Um, <laughs> so... So what do you personally love most about storytelling, Dan? I mean, it sounds like there's a lot there to love, but is there something that you have found over the years that just really speaks to you when it comes to storytelling? I don't know. Maybe it's our shared uh, background working in advertising. <laughs> <laughs> I, was, I was always attracted to great stories and great copywriting, but, um, well, you know this, uh, you know, we've gone through all sorts of changes in media and marketing and, at the core is good storytelling. Storytelling is our oldest form of learning. Mm. And before we had the printed press and before we were all literate, our humanity got expressed through stories, either cave paintings on the wall or in my family, uh, you know, stories about the old country or, uh, you know, mundane things. That's mm -hmm. how I learned as a child to relate to the world was in my mom reading me those P.D. Eastman books and my dad who uh, spent his entire career in the furniture business uh, telling stories about the clients and the manufacturers and the furniture trade shows that he went to. Um, the dude had timing. 
but the stories were amazing. He told amazing stories, and you know, I'd sit there with rapt attention listening to him. It's just he great. Had, I love it. Did he have formal training in that, or is that a natural thing for your family? Oh no, with him it was natural. My father was a <laughs> terrible student, um, but he could turn a phrase, and he could tell a joke. You always knew when the when the furniture markets were really bad, when the economy was really bad, because my father came back with a joke book in his head, and uh, and he was great. Um, you know, I miss that about him. I miss the storytelling that he used to do. And he again, so much of who he was about was the ability to tell stories. You know, for somebody in sales like him, the story is the key because it gets someone past the cost of what he was selling to the to the investment of what it was about mm-hmm. and you're willing to pay the money for an investment but maybe not if something just is a cost right. my father taught me that at a very young age <laughs> that's awesome so it, it we talk about it in sales and marketing and you've talked about it a little bit in some leadership stuff yeah how important is storytelling in other areas of life is this only for authors of podcasters and salespeople? you know i've gotten to know quite a few ceos over my days and um, I, I've never been the type of person who colors within the lines. And I, I often would say to them, you know what? You are the chief storyteller for your brand. I think if you own something, uh, a business, an entity, an idea, it's the storytelling that gives you, gives you ownership of that idea that leads you through its prominence. Um, if you think about great CEOs nowadays, Dan, I mean, I'm thinking about my, my fellow with like a college graduate, Bob Iger. Bob Iger's storytelling um, takes a storytelling brand like Disney and sends it to the moon and beyond. Mm. He has this amazing gift to draw you into that brand with all of its wonderful qualities, but also its huge money-making and scale potential. And it's because the CEO has become the chief storyteller for his brand. Mm-hmm. So it really does cross, I mean, gosh, it crosses all lines, right? Yeah, it, it really does. does. So what's one of your biggest challenges then as a storyteller, Dan? What do you face every day to, that, that, that knocks you down a notch? Um, you know, I think it's stone, a, a tone and style. Mm. I, might have a, I might have what I think is a great story. It doesn't always resonate with my audience you know, for a lot of reasons. Uh, maybe they can't relate to the circumstances. Maybe I haven't fleshed out the themes enough to make them universal. Um, it takes a lot of skill and a lot of practice to get storytelling, at least for me, to a point where I feel it resonates with my audience. One thing I've really noticed, Dan, I don't know if you get this too, I think social media have made people less tolerant of long stories. Um, Unless they are really dramatic and crazy stuff happens in them. Uh, I have found over the years that I have to be more succinct with the stories that I tell. Mm. When, I, when I started blogging in the mid-2000s, um, I was doing long-form blog posts, 900, 1,200 words, and uh, people liked them. 
Not so much now. I have to write um, when I'm when I'm telling stories, especially in blog posts, as I do on my own website. I've got to really cut that down and be mindful of the fact that my audience doesn't have the train of thought that maybe they had 10 or 15 years ago because there's so much more distraction now around us. Mm. And, we, and we have so much trouble tuning out noise that sometimes the signal doesn't always resonate. Right. So I am ever mindful of my voice and to trying to discover how to make the storytelling that, that I do remain relevant knowing that relevant is changing from day to day. Hour to hour sometimes, right? <laughs> yeah, it's so fast. And I mean, you know, I, I'm at a, a stage in my career where I feel like I'm still pretty young in my career. Uh, I'm, I'm not necessarily a young man, but I'm not, you know, toward the end of my career either. But it's still, it, it moves so fast, it, it blows my mind. I mean, I've, I've grown up in the internet age. I had, an, I had mm. a computer at a pretty young age and had the access to the internet. So I'm not a millennial, but I feel millennial-ish at times. Yeah. But, I, but it still it blows my mind how fast. And there are days when I feel like I'm an 80-year-old man going, stop, get off my lawn, just stay still for a minute, right? Right. It's so hard. How do you, how do you, try, how do you maintain that relevancy in that mindset? Well, I, I guess doing what my wife, who was theater trained, would tell me to do, which is every once in a while, break the fourth wall. The fourth wall is the wall between the, the actor on the stage and the audience. And uh, sometimes that means asking them, what do you think about this? <laughs> yeah. Right. Am I right? Mm -hmm. I put out a post, oh, I want to say about a month or two ago, um, purporting this idea of we need to go to a four-day work week. Why? Because the five-day work week, which is 100 years old, may have outlived its purpose. Uh, we lead different lives. Our, our success isn't based on the number of hours we work in a day because oftentimes people that work more than 60 are just burnouts and aren't productive. But, you know, millennials today work where they want to work, when they want to work. Sometimes if they have home offices, they'll tune in at 2 o'clock in the morning and be their most productive. Uh, does that mean we have to keep a five-day work week? Well, um, that was a very provocative piece and I got a lot of people responding to me. Not everybody agreed with it. That's okay. But that's a, an instance where I had to sort of break the fourth wall and maybe put something out there that was a little edgy and a little controversial to get people to respond to me. Otherwise you may not know how they feel. Yeah. Uh, provocative. That's what I heard out of that. That's good. Indeed. Um, yeah. So you also said, Dan, uh, you, you said uh, keeping the themes universal. So I want to explore universal themes. Sure. And we, we just talked about uh, how fast everything moves, how mm. fractured it can feel. And, and, I, and I, I have this feeling that the world is fractured right now in the sense that, you know, our attention's everywhere. It used to be you'd sit down at 6 p.m., watch the news, and then watch, you know, Wheel of Fortune maybe or something. And then you'd watch your 8 o'clock primetime TV. We had our, our stuff. Now everything's streaming. Right. You know, I just the other day I watched a, a, a short film on, on YouTube from a channel called Dust. It's all about sci-fi stuff. And it was like it's it's entertainment and thought provoking, but it's not at all on a network or anywhere. So we're so our attention is fractured. So right. you, when, when you talk about universal themes, 
do those still exist in today's very fractured world? Oh, I think they do. Um, what are the themes that we talk about? Um, love. I mean, at the, at the end of the day, I think people question whether or not they feel loved. That's a universal theme. Oh my God. You know, going back to uh, the antiquities, mm-hmm. uh, fear, um, hope, hopefulness, hopelessness, um, struggle. I mean, these are all universal themes. I don't think those change. I think what does change is the medium by which we express them. I mean, you mentioned network television. When I was in college, I was aiming towards a career probably in broadcast journalism or broadcast production. And everything had to fit a time frame down to the second. Well, you do a podcast, Dan, you're not editing down to 30 minutes on the dot. (laughs) <laughs> it is what it, it is what it is mm-hmm. um for for people of my mother's generation that that's totally mind blowing um i just got my mother a netflix subscription for her birthday it's going to take her a few months to get onto the idea that okay i can watch the uh, crown at any time mm. i don't have to sit down at eight o'clock on pbs and watch whatever i had pointed out my daughter, by contrast, who is 18 years old, going to be 19, I can't remember the last time she watched a, uh, a, a program on terrestrial television. <laughs> everything, is, everything that she watches is either on YouTube, on Netflix, on Amazon Prime, or whatever else she gets. Um, and that's the new normal. I mean, the, the, the themes that you talk about are great themes. We will, we will always get back to the great themes of love and hate and strife and uh, overcoming obstacles and boundaries. And in my particular case with my guests, ditching work that is uh, meaningless for uh, opportunities that are meaningful and joyful and, and provide um, purpose in our lives. Those are, those are universal themes. I don't see those changing. I really don't. So it's, it, I, I love that you mentioned earlier the four day work week and you're talking about this meaningful work and, and this other stuff that we just, we just covered. I've gone back to watch Star Trek, the next generation recently. Oh my goodness. <laughs> <laughs> right. And you know, Picard just came out and uh, as the, the time of this recording just premiered, it's on CBS all access again, streaming, not on CBS, the network. It's interesting. Right. Um, but in one of the episodes, they talked about how, we don't have to work to make a paycheck anymore. We just do what we want to, to forward humanity, et cetera. And I just found that absolutely fascinating. And my, my, my wife gives me a hard time. She's like, why do you watch this show? This is so goofy. And it kind of is. Um, the acting doesn't hold up necessarily. But I just love that idea of finding that meaningful work, telling our stories, understanding older stories so that we don't repeat the same thing. Like it all, it feels like what you're doing comes together with this. Um, do you think that there's, you know, as, as you talk to your guests about meaningful work, mm. is there a time when we have that point where we work because we want to and love to, not because we have to have a paycheck? Oh, I think we're going to have to. Uh, let, me, let me offer a volumetric. Um, uh, Gallup organization, you may have seen this on my website, 66% of people at work find some aspect of their work um, lacking direction or meaning. Hmm. So that could be 
as little as someone, you know, dealing with a company that changes his or her mission on the, on the fly every week. They get hired to do one thing, six months in, they're doing something completely else and they may not be trained for it and they're struggling. Often it's working, you know, for a boss that might be toxic or in a work group that's toxic. You know, maybe what makes the job meaningless is their core mission. You know, Dan, you know, when I was in advertising, my biggest client was a tobacco company. Mm-hmm. Um, at, at, you know, how do you, how do you get, a, how do you get around that? I, you know, I was making a lot of money. I was 27 years old and the work that I did represented 12 to 13% of the annual revenue of my agency, which at the time was the third largest um, independent marketing agency in the United States. And that was because my client had a gazillion dollars to throw at digital marketing <laughs> and direct marketing and, and print campaigns. Um, the work was interesting, but I had to go home every night and take a shower because um, the product that I was ultimately representing uh, makes people sick. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That, that, that's, a, that's, that's an extreme example of, of a meaningful opportunity gone meaningless. People have those kinds of things to various degrees in their, in their lives and in their careers. You know, maybe, maybe they're working for a company because they need the paycheck, but the company does terrible things, or maybe the, the leadership does terrible things. I'll, you know, I won't go into details. But we all, these are all things that happen in the news all the time. Maybe there's, you know, financial malfeasance or something worse. Mm-hmm. Over time, you know, people are going to say it can't all be about the transactional nature of work. There's got to be something better because you know what? Life is short. I got to look my children in the eye and tell them I'm proud of what I do. I'm proud of how I earn a living. I make the lives of people better. I make the planet a better place. I do as little harm to, to others and to the planet as possible, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And we are, we are getting to a point in our consciousness, I think. I don't want to get too, you know, new agey on you, but I do think we're getting to the point of our consciousness, especially with millennials who are now the biggest part of the workforce, where the idea of meaningful work is really going to hit its stride. Because the way we work has to change. When the biggest part of the workforce, the biggest cohort in it, drives the change, then it changes for everybody. And we're, we're, getting, to that, we're getting to that point certainly now. And when my daughter, who is 18, who is part of the Gen Z, when she gets out of college, it will be even more progressed. Mm-hmm. That this idea of meaningful work is really going to resonate. And it's, it already is, as I mentioned to you at Ithaca College, at the leadership conference. It was all about the why. Why are we doing this? Why are we here? I'm a college, first-year student, second-year student. What is my purpose on campus here beyond taking these really cool courses and meeting friends and living in a dormitory? What can I learn to do now that touches the why narrative in my life and in other people's lives? What's going on full scale right now? Mm-hmm. It's interesting to me too that it's it's a connecting of stories that helps make that happen. 
right? As we share our stories, our stories connect with others and the, the empathy and the relationships and everything. Like it just, man, it keeps coming down to stories. Much of a buzzword as it seems to be in advertising and marketing right now, it's, it really is a real thing. It's, I love it. Uh, storytelling will always be the thing that keeps us alive long after we're gone. I mean, if you think about uh, the narrative tradition uh, in so many cultures, they are stories passed down over many, many generations. And without them, our ancestors die. But with them, they live on within us. And that's why I think storytelling is so important. It is life itself. Storytelling is life itself. That is, <laughs> that is so good, Dan. Uh, I love that. Um, I was just taking a note on that because I had to, I had to remember that and like that, that has to be a thing that is so good. Um, so I'm going to know, you know, you, you talked about your, your advertising experience and you worked at this top marketing agency with a top client and you were the guy on it and you were the, mm. this sales professional just rocking it and, and kicking butt and taking names. Right. That to me sounds like, a making it moment for a marketing and advertising professional sales guy, right? You've made it. But well, now, I, wasn't actually, I wasn't actually in sales then. I was, oh, you weren't. I was uh, uh, a marketing operations guy. Okay. So that um, back in the day in the late eighties, early nineties, uh, before digital marketing really took off, um, we would create direct marketing campaigns uh, with concepts and with materials and with uh, programs that had never been done before. So in marketing operations, you figure out how to make these things happen. You, you, you're, the, you're the gears that move things along so that if you want to do a, um, a blind Pepsi taste test like we did stupidly in 1990 or 1991, uh, we were the guys that went, that, that went and helped do it. Unfortunately, you know, when that program was, was uh, being deployed right after the Super Bowl and, um, and we're getting reports from UPS that soda cans are exploding in the warehouse in Bemidji, Minnesota <laughs> because, oh, no. it's so, because it's so cold up there and the cans are exploding. Sure. Uh, <laughs> not, everything, not everything works, but it was interesting work. So I wasn't actually in sales until later on in my career when I started recruiting, certainly. Okay. All right. Um, so, so I think it's still, so my, I think, where my head's going is still maybe yeah. relevant here. Um, that sure. seems like a making it moment. Like, gosh, you're doing this stuff for marketing. You've got these great big ad campaigns going on. You're working with some of the biggest brands in the world. Mm. Um, now fast forward to today and you're, you're doing this great work and meaningful work and you're coaching people. You have this podcast. How, how is it that that was not necessarily a I've made it moment and you are where you are today. How do you define, so let me back up. How do you define making it in your professional world right now? Oh, wow. My head is spinning. Um, <laughs> this is what I love. All about right. This. If, I had, if I had to talk to myself when I was 27, 28, 29 years old with the, uh, with the perimeter office looking out at a gorgeous Vista in the Connecticut countryside, big, big company, um, was that really my making it moment? I was young and ambitious and probably overly ambitious, but um, not wise by years. So did I make it? I, you know, on some level I did. I, I, 27, 28 years old and probably the youngest person in the company with the largest share of 
revenue passing through him. Is that a make it moment? Yeah, maybe. But in looking back, Dan, and now into the fourth act of my 40-year career arc, I feel now is my making it moment. Why? Because I'm helping people that really need it. You know, before I was helping a client, and that's very gratifying. I mean, you know, when you're in advertising, and you are, it's the logos that you talk about, the logos, you know, that you, you know, people ask you, what are your logos? I know what they mean. What clients do you have? Okay, I'll rattle them off to you. I had some pretty big ones. I mentioned Pepsi. I mentioned, uh, 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 I had a major airline. We had uh, a division of General Motors. I mean, that's pretty heady stuff for a young guy, mm-hmm. cocky young guy. <laughs> um, but if you fast forward now with all the learning that has come from career disappointment, getting off, uh, getting laid off a couple of times, once on my birthday, mind you, oh. Boy, that, that, that was, that was brutal. Um, jobs that worked out, others that didn't work out. Um, business startups that I endeavored in that didn't pan out. And then a 20 year arc into recruiting. Had I not gone through good times and bad and a lot of bad and a lot of agita, as they say in the advertising business, I would not be at a point that I am now when I feel I'm making or could be or I'm about to make the biggest impact of my life speaking to people I don't know as somebody with a lot of life experience and a lot of professional experience who has had to help a lot of people uh, connect with work. Um, now's the time. It, it wasn't when I was 27. It's when I'm uh, going to be 59 later this year. That's mm-hmm. when I think it's going to happen. And I think that's really important, Dan, because um, when I got into the work world, it was, especially in advertising, it was, a, it, it was I used to say that advertising was for the young and stupid. <laughs> Because I think you had to be young and stupid to put up with the uh, the sociopaths around you who were creative directors and account directors and so forth. <laughs> but um, we cannot discount the value of, of um, wisdom and knowledge and insight and gray hair that makes people my age um, genuine and authoritative in our areas of expertise. I've got the scars to, um, to prove my genuineness in this quest for meaningful work because I've been laid off. I've had work disappointment. I've worked with crazy people. Um, I've had crazy bosses. I've worked 60 and 70 and 80 hour work weeks and, you know, and, and miss family events because of it, because I felt like I was chained to the desk. Mm-hmm. But now I'm at a point having lived through all that and I would not have changed anything that I've gone through. All the misery, all the good, all the bad, all the disappointment, all the setbacks, all the furtherances, I would not change a single thing because it's brought me to this point. And along the way, Dan, I've taken a lot of stories and they are good stories. 
and they help really bring forth the, um, the value of the work that I do. I think. Well said, beautifully said, Dan. Um, so some, one of my takeaways from that is, and I've, I've been through a little bit of it, um, in the last few years, you know, last 10 years or so, uh, <clears throat> not to the, to the length of time that you've been through or quite the ups and downs, mm. but as you talk about ups and downs, being laid off, uh, working for difficult people or with difficult people, all the, all this roller coaster when it comes to our work that we do, mm. it sounds to me like maybe we shouldn't define ourselves by our job, but by the work we do in the world. And, and that's a, a different thing. Is that a fair assessment? Well, let me ask you a question. Have you ever traveled internationally? Um, does Canada count? No, I, I really, no, I really, not really haven't. No. All right. So, so I, I've done a little. I've been to Italy. I've been to the Netherlands. I've been to Germany. Um, the one question you don't ask the natives is, what do you do for a living? It's, it's offensive. You can ask them about their lives. You can ask them about their families. What's it like growing up in this little town? Tell me about your life. You know, in Amsterdam, um, uh, especially, you don't ask people about the work that they do. You ask them about their lives. Work is a part of it. So I, I think we have, as a culture, as Americans, because we've grown up with this cockamamie idea called the uh, American dream, uh, which until recently was all about upward mobility. And the upward, the, the, the motion lotion for the upward mobility was the work that we do. Dan, tell me about yourself. What do you do for a living? That's usually in a mixer. The first question that somebody will ask me. Mm -hmm. um, I like what Terry Gross from NPR's Fresh Air says. I go up to a stranger, I want to ask them, tell me something really cool about you that no one knows. Mm -hmm. Oh my God, the storytelling that comes out of that. Um, but it opens up this world that is really what the person is about. We've, we, we, dis, we, we, we do ourselves a disfavor, uh, Dan, if we make our, uh, make our value in life and our value to others based on just the work that we do. Mm -hmm. it's terrible. Right. Yeah. I, 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 I hate so, that question. Yeah. So no, it's, it's actually, I'm glad that you asked it because you know, where we are now with the American dream after we went through the great recession, the American dream, according to Pew research is really about not upward mobility because everybody's going backwards. If you consider the, 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 the earning potential, hmm. it's about stability and it's about, you know, life not sucking. So maybe I'm not making a lot of money doing the, the work and the side hustles I'm doing. But at the end of the day, I really like my life. Mm -hmm. It's stable. I can at least get through, you know, uh, a seismic financial jolt and not remain up at night sleeping because, um, you know, my, I had to pay out of pocket for a, a, a burst pipe in the basement. Mm -hmm. That's what, that's what, that's what I think people want to get away from that aspect that work has to be about just keeping us above water. It has to be about something more. Yeah. hundred percent. And so we're not caught up yet in the storytelling that we tell others about ourselves. Um, you know, if you were to ask me, what do I do? I help people 
find and do meaningful work. It's work that's profound, protects the planet, empowers people and communities, and is fun to do. Mm-hmm. That's my uh, half floor elevator pitch. And, 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 and that took a long time to get me. That took a long time to get to. Hmm. Oh, I can imagine there's a lot of iterations to get to that point. Once you've, once it clicks, it feels so good. And you're like, all right, now I'm finally there. So that's why, that's why I I can't stand that question of what do you do? Um, when it's a first meeting someone, because my Mm -hmm. response is always, Oh, well, I'm a dad and a husband and I like to ride motorcycles and I, and I love hockey, go Red Wings. And they're like, yeah, but what do you do? Oh, I do some podcasting and some other stuff. I've got cats. Like I just, I try to put off the career talk as much as possible, unless, unless it's specifically relevant to that moment. Like I'd much rather my work in the world being a good husband, being a good dad and stepdad, um, the nonprofits I work with, how much I love my work. Like all of that is so much more. Uh, yeah, that's, that's now, good. Stuff. Now you live in Kalamazoo. Do I, did, did I get yep. that right? Yeah, pretty close. Yep. I mean, yes, well, you got it right. I'm pretty close to that town. <laughs> well, I mean, you're in a community that once had a thriving pharmaceutical base. Mm-hmm. Um, and I imagine it would be pretty hard for somebody who worked in it to be asked that question. And they never really connected with another kind of work because, you know, up John left town or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm throwing that name out. I don't even know if that exists anymore. I just remember they used to be in Kalamazoo. Yeah, they were. Absolutely. They got bought a couple of different times, but yep, you're absolutely right. But you know, you know, how awful for somebody to feel that they have to define themselves by the work that they used to do, but not what's resonating with them right now. Right. You know, um, my brother, my brother, Steve, um, is a retired, um, uh, for lack of a better term, state epidemiologist in New York state. I mean, he, he helped keep, uh, uh, restaurants safe and clean and summer camps and watersheds safe and clean. Hmm. And, um, and then he gave it up. But what is he doing now? He, he's retired, but what gives him, one of the things that gives him purpose is being involved in palliative care for people who are dying. And so my brother spends time with them in often their last moments. Hmm. And it's the most meaningful thing for him to be present in somebody in the life of somebody who's about to transition out of life. Now he's not getting paid for it. He's retired. He gets a pension from the state of New York uh, as he should. But if you were to ask him what he does, I would, I would venture to guess that Steve would mention the work that he does like that now as being who he's about. Mm-hmm. And that's pretty amazing. That's full of meaning and full of purpose. Mm. I, I, that makes me just feel good hearing that story. What, a, what an amazing um, thing that he's doing. Amazing, amazing work that he's doing. Oh, indeed. indeed. Have you had him on your show? Oh, eventually. <laughs> <laughs> That'd be a great story to hear. <clears throat> so, Dan, I, I want to get to my last question here in just a minute, um, but I want to make sure everybody has a chance to connect with you, your show, the work you're doing. What's the central location you send people to to connect with, with you? Well, it depends how they like to listen to us. If they are, um, you know, the type of podcast listener who likes to get their podcast through a channel like Apple podcast or Spotify or Pandora or Stitcher, we just tell them keyword, the tightrope podcast, wherever you get your podcast. I mean, I think, uh, 
you know, through Blueberry, which I think you share with me as a host. Um, they do a pretty good job of getting us syndicated to, you know, the, the platforms that people enjoy most. And that's great. Um, otherwise, you can just point them to dansmolin.com and go to our podcast tab, pull down recent episodes. And there we got our show notes. You can open them up. And right at the top of each show note, we have our player and you can listen to our episodes. It's as simple as that. Awesome. So dansmolin.com for that. And then the tightrope podcast, anywhere you're listening. Great stuff, Dan. Thank you. So this has been absolutely fun. Uh, what I want to know from you is you said at the beginning, you're a storyteller from as early as you can remember and you do it professionally as well. But if someone were to say to you today, Dan, you can no longer be a storyteller. What would the last story look like for you that you want to leave behind? Well, if I were to die in the next 15 minutes, it would be about a story that came into my head today. I wasn't planning on this. I was planning mm. on telling you a completely different story. But here's the story. Um, my dad passed away a little over a year ago. Uh, today would have been his 92nd birthday. By sheer coincidence, in, um, in uh, in triplepundit.com is a story today about the 2020 Tokyo Summer Games and about how the organizing committee um, is going to have the athletes sleep on beds made out of recycled uh, cardboard material. Um, think about the boxes you get from Amazon, but thicker, uh, triple wall. Um, uh, Think, think about the uh, think about a car uh, uh, a corrugated uh, cardboard box, but three uh, three walls thick, mm. and that's what they're building these beds out of. Now, why am I telling you this story? What does this have to do with my late father? It has everything to do with my late father, but most importantly, with timing. Forty years ago, in 1980, started in 1979. My dad, who spent his entire adult life in the furniture business, was representing a furniture line, very high-end contemporary furniture line manufactured out of North Carolina, um, but was really struggling selling it to stores, to retailers, because the economy in 1980 was abysmal. The uh, interest rates were uh, 17, 18, 19%. I mean, people if they had a finance to go buy furniture, it was very, very expensive. So they weren't buying furniture. And apropos to nothing, my father's going through a, a magazine and he comes upon an ad for the St. Regis Paper Company. And in this ad, um, you see a bridge made out of triple wall corrugated paper. And on this bridge is a brand new Rolls Royce driving over it and it, the bridge is not collapsing. It is holding this two and a half ton vehicle. It's amazing. This is not puffery. It actually works. If you, uh, triple wall is so, is so strong. It's gossamer thin, gossamer light rather, but strong as iron. Mm. My father, who amazing creative mind visionary, looked at this and said, huh, that'd be really cool to make furniture out of that. If a, if a, Rolls-Royce Corniche can drive over it, then people can plunk their rear ends on a seat made out of it or lie on a bed made out of it or work out of a table made out of it. Well, off to the races with my dad. He sat down with one of the designers from, uh, that he knew in the furniture business, uh, somebody who was highly respected. And the two of them sat at a, sat at a bar 
uh, nursing uh, screwdrivers while they sat with sketch pads at a, a bar at, the, uh, at a uh, Holiday Inn in um, Bucks County, Pennsylvania <laughs> for like four or five straight days. And they designed a whole line of furniture, which they gave the name Corrugates, which was clever. And my dad um, uh, went to St. Regis with the sketches and they said, fantastic, we'll build you prototypes. You see if you can go uh, market the furniture. So very quickly they, they came through and they made these prototypes and they looked exactly like the drawings that my dad and his friend designed. Great. So my father starts going out on the road and it's not going well. One by one, these old school retailers are saying to him, oh, come on, are you kidding me? I throw that junk in the garbage with the rest of the packing containers. <laughs> and my father was so dejected and he was like, oh, geez, you know, this would be so cool to, to make furniture out of uh, out of cardboard. Well, um, make a long story short, it went nowhere. And the company that he worked for priced the furniture too high so that it, it almost came out to be as expensive as furniture. I mean, what's the point? Right. Uh, his whole purpose in doing this was to help people get a highly uh, uh, stylized design cheaply that they could take with them wherever they wanted to go. And the idea died and I got, I got all the prototypes and I took one of the chairs with me to college and it lasted two full semesters. And then, I don't know, somebody spilled a, somebody spilled a drink on it and it got soggy wet and we threw it <laughs> in the garbage and that was the end of it. And, um, you know, my dad lamented it. Uh, timing wasn't right. Timing wasn't right. Well, that's right. His timing wasn't right. It was 40 years to the month that the timing was right. And now the 2020 Summer Olympics in Tokyo is taking his idea. They didn't know it was idea. And they're making it world famous. Mm. That story came to me at uh, 10 o'clock Eastern time this morning. What a great way to remember your dad on his, what would have been his birthday. 92nd birthday today. What would have been his 92nd birthday. That's cool. So this wasn't the story I was prepared to tell Dan, but it, <laughs> it had to be the story that we, that we tell, that we told today. Well, thank you for sharing that. What a great, vulnerable, real story to tell. So I appreciate the, it, Dan. The moral of the story is great ideas need patience. They need time often. Hmm. Um, uh, apropos to nothing, I, I, I wrote and got a patent for a marketing application that I was rewarded by the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office in 1998. And I sat with it forever. Why? Because the marketplace wasn't ready for it yet. It didn't become commercially viable until, oh, probably 10 or so years ago. I sold that patent to a marketing company for a lot of money. I used that money as seed capital to start my recruiting business and I never looked back because mm. that was its purpose. It was my purpose to invent it, not to see it through as a startup business. And I'm completely fine with that. Mm. But the moral of the story is sometimes timing is everything and uh, great, great thinkers often suffer from coming up with futuristic ideas. I know you watch, you watch a lot of science fiction, <laughs> So some of those ideas like flying cars aren't, aren't marketed yet, you know, but they were thought up in the 1950s and they were great ideas then. 100%. We just have to, we just have to be patient. <laughs> oh, so good, Dan. Thanks for imparting that wisdom on us. Uh, and thanks for the conversation today. I appreciate it. Everybody go to dansmolen.com to connect. Uh, Dan, thanks again. It's been a pleasure, man. Thank you, Dan. It's been a real pleasure.
Once again, thank you so much, Dan Smolin, for joining me. You can connect with Dan at the links in the show notes. Enjoy the episode. Consider sharing it with someone who could benefit from it, someone who can find meaningful work. Share it on social media, a personal note, an email, a text, however you share it. Help spread the word on these conversations with storytellers. I appreciate it very much. Let's change the world through story together, shall we? And if you want to share your story with me, go to thestorytellersnetwork.com to connect there or email me directly, dan at thestorytellersnetwork.com. And be sure to subscribe while you're there on the website. Get emails from me there as well. Thank you for joining me on this journey. Until next time, here's to telling our stories, having stories to tell. Cheers. Thank you.